Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior co-editors of the Oxford University Press Journal, Global Symmetry. It's my pleasure today to be interviewing Jonathan Kirshner. Jonathan is a professor of international political economy in the Department of Government at Cornell. Prior to that, Jonathan was the chair of the Economics and National Security Program at the Olin Institute of Strategic Studies at Harvard. Jonathan is an expert in global financial governance and the global economy. He's written a number of books in the area, including The Great Wall of Money, Power and Politics in China's International Monetary Relations, The Future of the Dollar, and most recently, The American Power After the Financial Crisis. Welcome, Jonathan Kirshner. It's a real pleasure to have you here at the uh, podcast for the Global Symmetry Journal. Happy to be here. Oh, great. So just so the audience will know, we're, uh, some of the questions that I'm going to raise with you will reflect questioning around two articles that are now in uh, the advance access, uh, the digital side, of Global Symmetry. One is a piece by Eric Kleiner. And that piece is looking really at uh, the legacies of the 2008 crisis of global financial governance. And then we're also going to, I may ask you a few questions about another um, uh, advanced access piece for the journal, and that's by Henry Farrell from uh, George Washington University, and it's called Globalized Green Lanternism. Uh, what the audience also won't know is that about a year ago, in a bit, you and uh, Henry and Eric and, in fact, our colleague Dan Dresner from Tufts all got to be on a panel that we put together for one of the uh, Princeton workshops that we do kind of on an annual basis for global governance. So we were already beginning to examine the questions around global economy. And so we're really pleased to have you here with us today to ask uh, a number of questions. So let me start out, uh, Jonathan, with a kind of the, a big picture question. How do we state, uh, how do we explain or understand the state of the global economy right now, particularly given the historical low interest rates on U.S. Treasuries, the negative rates in Japan and Germany. What is this telling us about the global economy? Well, I think the most important thing it's telling us about the global economy is that we are still in the post-financial crisis environment, that the damage wrought by the financial crisis was profound and it delivered um, the great recession that we've experienced, that it exposed weaknesses in the European economy in particular, due to dysfunctions about the management of the European monetary system that were even greater than we thought they might have been. It also, as a more narrow and technical point, uh, speaks to an arcane debate about the optimal level of inflation. Uh, I had participated in a debate in the 1990s suggesting that the emphasis on very low inflation targeting, like 2%, is actually suboptimal for a number of reasons. But among those reasons were that at very low levels of inflation, you actually lose the ability to practice monetary policy aptly because you can't really reduce monetary policy or interest rates uh, below zero, although we obviously see experimentations with that now. 
But so what we're seeing is an extremely sluggish global economy, which is self-reinforcing, of course. And also we have seen the exposure of the limits of the ability to practice monetary policy. And this is particularly problematic because of the political fragility that we see in many elements, uh, many societies in the Western world, in which fiscal stimulus is, is virtually off the table. And so governments find themselves uh, handcuffed in their ability to address this economic stagnation. So is, is, has monetary policy in effect, I presume that it would include uh, quantitative easing, has, has that kind of, have they reached their end point? Are they no longer operative in terms of the global economy? Well, I don't know definitively if they are not operative, but we have seen monetary policy being asked to do extraordinary things and more than it is normally capable of doing. And we've seen a lot of interesting experiments in quantitative easing, which I think were worth exploring. But again, there is only so much. Uh, this goes back to the Keynes of the 30s, where he talked about monetary policy as pushing on a string. There's only so much that we can expect monetary policy to achieve. And as policymakers have been left solely with these limited monetary policy levers, they have inhibited the range of possible actions that governments can take. So it's not so much that we've reached the end of them as we've we are exceeding the limits of what purely monetary policies, even creative and experimental ones, can possibly hope to achieve. All right. Um, let me let me broaden it out a wee bit then. Uh, a recent piece by Neil Irwin at the uh, Upshot at the New York Times, and this was just after the Brexit vote. He suggested that the you know the trends that were emerging out of the Brexit vote were just reinforcing trends that were already alive in the global economic system. He mentioned a whole variety of features, low inflation, strong dollar, impotent monetary policy, which we've just been talking about, low interest rates, which we've also been referencing, and then weak growth and political instability. So I want to take you really to the the latter two and help you know, get a feel for what the consequences and what are the reasons for this weak economic growth that we seem to see right across the board from the established countries, obviously the United States, but the European Union, uh, Britain, a severe recession in Brazil, one of the so-called rising powers, a deceleration in economic growth in China, uh, it's still obviously, <laughs> relatively speaking, robust at around, let's say, 6%, 6.5%. But still, across the board, we've seen a significant slowdown in economic growth. What, what's the cause here? Well, unpacking the causes of slow economic growth you know, is a great mystery. Again, I do think that it is common after a massive financial crisis for there to be a, a severe recession and a lingering one that was anticipated at the time, and that is what we've seen. But I would call attention to this dynamic that you mentioned about the relationship between weak growth and political instability. And I think uh, we were fortunate that we weren't experiencing those at the time of the global financial crisis, and therefore the initial policy responses to that uh, were quite good. But I think as the tide has failed to turn, and we see reinforcing economic developments, if European growth is sluggish, that will affect other markets in the world, including in the U.S. and Asia. If Chinese growth decelerates, that affects Latin America. Again, the world is very much interconnected, and so these downturns in economic activity that we see have a 
technically a positive reinforcement loop, but positive sounds like a good thing. What they do is they, they reinforce each other and make them all accelerate. And so the global economy's constriction is self-reinforcing, and it has been compounded by, not surprisingly, uh, political distress that has emerged from it. So if we turn briefly to our colleague uh, Henry Farrell, he looks at this question and it really the relationship between economic growth and kind of global great power collaboration and cooperation in the international system. And what he has suggested even, he, he obviously uh, acknowledges the stagnation and in fact suggests that it, the period of the 50s and onward till about now, uh, or at least 2008, really uh, may reflect a very unique period and that now we seem to have had a significant slowdown. What he poses is that we've always assumed that uh, cooperation has led to economic growth and prosperity in the global economy. But he at least poses the possibility that it runs the other way. So I wanted to ask you, what's your thought about this interrelationship between collaboration, collaboration among the great powers, and e economic growth, economic prosperity? Well, Henry is making two different points there, and I think each of them have significant merit and are worth thinking about uh, more elaborately. One is the exceptional nature of his period in the 1950s to the 1980s, which is attributable, especially in the United States, to a, a confluence of exceptional forces, and we may need to acknowledge that those forces are, are no longer with us. On the second point, Henry is speaking to an argument that kind of turns what they call hegemonic stability theory a bit around uh, hegemonic stability theory holding that when you have a great power in the system, that great power can provide international public goods and therefore make international economic cooperation uh, more likely. And I think that there is a, a decent amount of merit to that theory, but some critics, and I think Henry is, is now among them, have made the observation that it isn't so much that cooperation allowed good times to take place so much as that good times allowed cooperation to take place. Why is that? It's because economic growth takes the edge off of a lot of political contestation and takes the edge off demands, say, for protectionism from elites. It allows for a more far-sighted pursuit of economic policies, which basically is what international economic cooperation is. And the inside baseball of the international relations theory of that is, is to emphasize the role of economic activity itself in explaining prospects for cooperation as opposed to the concentration of power allowing for the prospects of economic growth, claiming that in turn that is associated with good times. And uh, there is reason to see merit in those types of arguments, although I do think that one can argue that the provision of public goods by leaders such as the United States in the 30 years after the Second World War did make an important difference in enabling the types of far-sighted international economic cooperation and the prosperity uh, which followed. And you've been uh, critical and suggested recently, of course, that uh, the United States will suffer a relative decline, that there will be an erosion, therefore, uh, at least relatively, of American power. So what, you know, kind of what are the consequences then for the global economy as you see it, if in fact you're right in suggesting this, uh, this loss of power by the United States? And obviously, leaving aside who may be the leader come after November. Sure. Uh, yes, let's please leave that aside. Uh, 
Um, I think that the important word there is relative. I, I do want to stress that when I and others have been talking about the quote-unquote decline of America, what we are talking about is the relative decline of the United States as a player in the international system, but the U.S. economy remains enormous and essentially without peer, and that is certainly to be said for the U.S. military. But if you look at trends that you can observe in the international economy and in international politics, is the U.S. going to be relatively more powerful and more capacious, meaning able to get what it wants as it could in the past, uh, as opposed to the present. And those trends are suggestive of a relative erosion of American power. Uh, this matters to the extent to which that international cooperation that we think will lead to good things is dependent upon uh, leadership, and especially the type of leadership that at times be costly. Now, what I argued in my book, American Power After the Financial Crisis, is that the erosion of American power, and more importantly, I think, than that, the elimination of the idea that the American financial model was singularly legitimate will lead to experimentation with different types of uh, economic activities and organization, a hunger for, in the academic phrase I used, a new heterogeneity of thinking about how to organize money and finance. And that may make sense. There were obviously profound problems with the American financial model, and before the financial crisis, that was the only game in town. And it makes perfect sense that other actors now seek to experiment with alternative versions of that type of governance. But the extent to which it makes cooperation over questions of money and finance more challenging, uh, that indeed is probably problematic for international economic cooperation. Interesting. And let, let me therefore take you to uh, Eric Haliner's piece, because Eric uh, appears to suggest that post the 2008 global financial crisis, he at least sees two different trends emerging, particularly with respect to global financial governance. One trend that he sees is a certain strengthening of the multilateral cooperation, that is intensified financial cooperation through some bank swaps, obviously the Federal Reserve's willingness to, to set in place some swaps with a variety of countries, uh, the emergence of the G20 uh, Leaders Summit, the G20 had been around, but not by way of a leaders forum, and that only occurs with the crisis, a certain reinvigoration of the IMF and the use of other you know, formal institutions, including the World Bank and the um, OECD, et cetera, et cetera. But then he, he describes a second trend, and that trend is not towards greater collaboration, but towards greater uh, decentralization. He points to the swaps uh, from Chiang Mai, the BRICS uh, contingent reserve arrangements, which are, again, kinds of swap arrangements, the identification of internationalization of the renminbi, and on, and regulatory, you know, kinds of patterns, host country regulations, etc. So here are these two trends. What do you see happening in terms of the global financial governance, particularly in the light of your own assessment, that there's going to be a relative loss of power by the presumed, in quotes, hegemon, the United States? Well, I'm always reluctant to disagree with Eric, who really knows his stuff. And I think that each of his observations, uh, Group 1 uh, on what he sees after the crisis and Group 2 on the more disparate range of activity, both of them are accurate. I think where I part company with Eric a bit is he's a little more 
uh, enthusiastic about some of the reforms that have taken place, especially at the international level in terms of governance and things like the, the G20 and, and other outfits like that. Mm -hmm. And it's not so much that I disagree with Eric's, whereas that I would place a much greater emphasis on what I consider to be the elephant in the room, which is that our financial systems, here I speak principally of the United States, but I believe it is a general phenomenon, are largely unreformed. That is that we learned at the moment of the global financial crisis what many of us had argued for some time, which is that unregulated, unsupervised financial structures, as we had allowed them to I believe metastasize is the most accurate word, are inherently vulnerable to financial crisis. That financial crises are endogenous to unregulated, enormous financial firms. And that we should not be surprised when they happen, but rather they will happen as a natural functioning of an unregulated financial economy. And what that means is that both regulation and supervision need to be designed as if we understand this inherent danger. The analogy I use over and over again has to do with nuclear safety. Uh, you can favor nuclear power, and you know personally I'm comfortable with the idea of nuclear power, but I wouldn't want it to leave in the hands of the industry how to dispose of nuclear waste. <laughs> Unregulated finance generates systemic risk. Systemic risk causes financial crisis. We need to be alert to the toxic waste, the externalities generated by unregulated finance, and we need to try and contain them. We shouldn't leave finance unregulated any more than we would leave the nuclear power industry unregulated. But we are looking at a financial system that has been tinkered with at the edges. Now, the critics of the reforms say it has been tinkered by a thousand cuts, you know, these 10,000 pages of legislation. But that's just invitations to, to find ways to evade all these regulations that have taken place. What we have not had as a nation and as an international community is a fundamental conversation of, uh, as to what a safe and sound financial system looks like and what is the role of finance in the national and international economy. Once upon a time, the role of finance was to facilitate real economic activity not to be an economic activity in and of itself. But the churning of securities and the making of mass fortunes in finance uh, is one of the things that led to the frothing of activity that made a large financial crisis almost inevitable. So you can talk about institutional reform or cooperation or tinkering at the margins, but as long as the financial system that we had in place before the crisis is largely in place after the crisis, we are staring down the possibility that another financial crisis from somewhere at some time for reasons unknown and unanticipated will likely occur. Well, if that's true, and you've already you know, proposed or assessed that you're likely to see relative decline uh, of the United States, you yourself have concluded, this is from the Washington Post, that we're likely to see a less coherent, more heterogeneous, more contested, contested international economic order. That's kind of your perspective. So with this relative decline, are, are we likely to be worse off in terms of financial governance, or does the relative decline lead to the possibilities of collaboration among various of the great powers. I mean, where are we then in this track? Well, it's a mixed bag. Uh, I do think that there, the silver lining is that this new heterogeneity, this desire for experimentation, 
among many countries throughout the globe, and the development of new regional institutions might, at a lower level, create all of these kind of overlapping opportunities for what they used to call minilateralism and styles of cooperation that might provide a safety net for global economic distress. I do think it is the case that if there is no dominant player in the system, the problems that emerge in managing the global system of international money and finance do become more complex because, as a technical matter, the negative externalities generated by macroeconomic policies, that is, interest rate policies and exchange rate policies, that is, when a country raises its interest rates, all countries in the world are affected suddenly and at once by it. And so you need a kind of public vision of how to deal with that. And that's why these hegemonic stability theorists thought a great power could step in and kind of supervise the global economy. Mm -hmm. And that contrasts with microeconomic contestation. For example, if I raise my interest rates, I affect everybody at once and they're kind of stuck with it. If I raise a tariff against a country, another country can raise their tariff directly at me. So it may be bad for the world if I raise my tariffs, but it's not visited as a public good. It's more something that can be privatized or divertible or challenged on a case-by-case -case and country-by-country -country basis. But because macroeconomic externalities regarding exchange rate policies, interest rate policies, monetary policies, etc., tend to generate these public effects throughout the global economy, trying to deal with them with the world's eye view in mind is somewhat more challenging. So on the one hand, I do think that this new heterogeneity of interest and experimentation with different ideas, forms of governance and arrangements of money and finance is probably a productive thing for the world economy. Multipolar organization of the world's money and finance is probably going to be a more complex and contested thing, which was the point I was making in that Washington Post interview. Right. So, I mean, as a, bringing it back as a last uh, element, if we were to see a coordinated effort at the macroeconomic side to raise growth by way of either structural reform or, uh, you know, moving towards uh, physical stimulus, that kind of thing, would that assist us in, in helping, you know, uh, improve uh, global financial governance? Or is it still in the monetary, in the financial side that we got to deal with the problem? Well, I think more the first part of what you said, which is a coordinated act of stimulus um, on the real side of the economy mm -hmm. might, might uh, be more productive in solving some of these problems. Global economic growth, uh, improvements in global economic growth, improvements in the growth in Europe and the US and in China will take the edge off of many of our problems. It is, a, it is a bomb that you can put on all economic distress. So many problems go away if, if economic growth increases by 1%. Mm -hmm. uh, but I don't mean to sound optimistic, of course, uh, in that when I wrote in American Harvard the financial crisis about what was causing, why the financial crisis reflected a turning point uh, in global economic governance or in the global economy more generally, I focused on two mechanisms, one having to do with its locking in of underlying economic trends that we were seeing taking place already, and the other had to do with the delegitimation of the American financial model and the shift to this new heterogeneity stuff. But I also talked about, although to a less extent, the consequences on domestic politics in these various actors, both in the US and in Europe. Now, I think it's fair to say that in Europe, I underestimated uh, the profound effects that the financial crisis would have on politics there. In the U.S., I think I was a little more alert to the fact that there was a brewing 
populism on both the left and the right that was disenchanted uh, with participation in the global economy and that we might see a turn away from American enthusiasm uh, for productive international engagement. Now, we are seeing this both in the U.S. and in Europe in ways that exceeded, in terrible, terrible ways, uh, my expectations about what might happen. But I think it is fair to say that the, the crisis and the slow growth that followed and the political contestation have empowered, let's just loosely call them isolationist elements uh, in the United States, and you see similar phenomena bubbling up in Europe, that think that turning away from the global economy is somehow a solution to the problems that we see, when it really is just a manifestation of terrible frustration leading to the instinct to kind of blame outsiders for the problems that one sees. But this third mechanism, which I did not emphasize as much in my own writing, I think is the significant and dangerous driver for the global economy and for international politics in the coming years. So the, the rise of populism from your perspective has some rather dire, potentially dire consequences for the global economy. Obviously, it would have impacts on collaboration, but it goes beyond that, I suspect, by what you're suggesting. Yes. I mean, I think the two things to look at are in Europe, whether the rise of illiberalism is compatible with the vision of the entire European project. Right. And in the U.S., with the rise of a certain type of nativist ethnic nationalism, the types of which we have not seen at a legitimate political level in this country in historical memory, uh, runs the risk of triggering catastrophic economic policies, uh, including the real prospect of, of, of a trade war that, that, that causes great damage for the entire global economy and, and also the American economy, should that come to fruition. These, these are the clear and present dangers that the global economy is facing more than any other thing. Well, uh, sober, sobering thoughts, uh, uh, no doubt. But I really want to thank you, Jonathan, for joining us today in exploring some of the various um, avenues and trends in the global economy and in the global financial governance aspects of the global economy. It's much appreciated. Sure. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. This Global Symmetry podcast was hosted by Alan Alexandrov, produced by Harmony Z, music by Kevin McLeod. For more information, check out globalsymmetryproject.com.